And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This passage that we're looking at, it reminds me of a, of a saying uh, that I think uh, there are different variations on, but it's one that we say at our house all the time. When you're looking for something, but you can't find it, and all of a sudden you realize it was right in front of you the entire time. It's the saying that goes something like this, that if it would have been a bear, it would have bit me. And uh, th- th- that's what this passage is basically about. Something so obvious, or something that should be so obvious, and it's right in front of you, and yet you fail to see it. I think this normal, everyday experience, it it illustrates a spiritual struggle that we all have when it comes to understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. The claim of Jesus and his gospel is, what you are looking for, What you believe you most need right now, whatever your circumstances, is right in front of you. It's right in front of you. And yet, just like these disciples, Jesus' disciples, we don't see it. And therefore, we often fail to understand it and to enjoy it. So, what do we tend to do? Why does that happen? Let me look with you at the disciples uh, as a doorway into this passage together for tonight. They've, been, they've seen Jesus now feed enormous groups of people. One crowd of over well over 5,000 and here another crowd of 4,000 in the middle of nowhere with only a very little bit of bread and a few fish. And yet in verse 14, we read that they were crossing again the Sea of Galilee And the disciples, Mark tells us, they had forgotten to bring bread. They only had one loaf of bread. And you can just imagine, uh, as is sort of hinted at in verse 16, when they begin discussing with one another the fact that they don't have any bread, just the amount of 
finger pointing and blame shifting. And I thought that was your job, Peter. You're supposed to bring the bread and you forgot. And in the midst of this, there's an interesting word here that Mark uses to describe what's happening. And it's this word in verse 16, uh, discussing. And Jesus mentions it also in verse 17 when he says, why are you discussing? And it's this word that when it's used, it, it occurs seven times in Mark's gospel. And it's always used negatively. It's never positive the way that it is used. And in each case, it describes people who are trying to resolve a problem without Jesus. It always is used by groups of people who are in the midst of a difficulty and they're trying to resolve it without reference to him or they're, they're confounded by Jesus. They find him hard to understand. And this word is always used in that context where they're trying to figure out who he is without asking him, without going to him, without talking to him. And this is precisely what the disciples are doing here. Notice how Mark describes them at at this point. When he says in verse 16, they began discussing with one another. In other words, without Jesus. And then in verse 17, the way that Jesus addresses them, he says to them, why are you discussing these things? The fact that you have no bread. Mark makes it very clear that the disciples here are in this conundrum, this situation that's so obvious to them that they are without what they need and they're doing it without any reference to Jesus, even though he is right in the boat with them. So what does Jesus do? What Jesus does in this passage for his disciples and and through them for us is that he identifies what we fail to see about ourselves in order that we might see him for who he really is. In other words, perhaps more than, than almost any passage that, that I, I think we've seen so far in Mark's gospel, Jesus is pastoring us. He's pastoring his disciples. He's speaking to them right where they're having a hard time. Right in the midst of what seems so obvious to them, And as a result, what should be obvious to them isn't at all. So what I want to do is look at this with you. How how do you let Jesus pastor you from this passage? We're going to see three things about how to do that. We need to heed Jesus' warning. We need to heed his warning. We need to remember his compassion. And we need to look beyond the obvious until we see Jesus. So we need to heed his warning, remember his compassion, and look beyond the obvious until we see Jesus. So first, let's look at the warning that Jesus gives that we need to pay attention to. Right between, I'm I'm dropping in the middle of the story because really the whole story revolves around the disciples' response to him. And this predicament that they're in as they're on the way to Bethsaida, as we read in verse 22. They're on the way and they have no bread. And Jesus, in the middle of of hearing them, realize this and then discuss it. In verse 15, he interjects and he says, watch out, beware 
of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He speaks this word of a rather strong warning. And Mark makes it very clear that we need to stop and we need to pay attention to this. We need to heed this warning. And he does it by, by showing us in three very quick words. He says in verse 15, he cautioned them. And he says, watch out. And then he says, beware. It's an emphatic way that Mark helps us to see that Jesus wants you to listen up. Because what he's asking you to look out for really is a life or death matter. What he's asking you to pay attention to is perhaps one of the most fundamental things you need to see about yourself in order that you might see Jesus for who he really is. We must look out for what Jesus calls here the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, if you were to look at the passages in, in Matthew and Luke that are parallel to this one, both Matthew and Luke tell us pretty specifically what they mean when Jesus says this. In Matthew, Jesus, he, he pretty much identifies the leaven that Jesus refers to here as the teaching of the religious leaders. To look out for the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. That that's the leaven that you're to look out for. And then in Luke, Luke tells us, that the leaven is the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. But interestingly, in Mark, he doesn't, he doesn't do that for us. And in fact, he adds in a slightly different nuance when he includes not just the leaven of the Pharisees, but then the leaven of Herod. So what's he mean? What, what does he mean by the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? Well, think for a moment. First of all, what is leaven? Some of you, I know, are, are really good cooks. And immediately you're gonna, you're gonna, you'll get what leaven is. That it's, it's like yeast, without which you can't really bake. Nothing that has to rise for a time will actually do what it's supposed to do. It's, you make really bad bread without leaven or yeast. But the idea here is that leaven... Is a very small amount of something that when you add it to a, uh, a wealth of other ingredients, it has this power of working its way in throughout the entire loaf. And it affects the entire thing. And the way in which this idea of leaven gets used in the New Testament, it's almost always negative. There's only one exception out of a dozen or so uses where it's actually used positively. And in this case, we see that Jesus uses it in the negative sense, that it describes something sinister, almost sneaky, something dangerous. So when Jesus, what does he mean then when he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? It's an interesting pair to put the Pharisees and, the, and Herod together because they don't often, they're not friends. They're, they're not groups that you would often put together. Which then forces us to ask the question, well then, what is Mark trying to show us by pairing the Pharisees and Herod together? And what he's showing us, is, especially if you've been with us over previous weeks, the opposition against Jesus is growing. It's mounting. It's getting more intense. And there are two groups where this opposition comes from. 
It comes from the Pharisees. And it comes from Herod. So when Jesus is talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, what he's talking about is the opposition to Jesus that we see in the Pharisees and Herod. An unwillingness to recognize him. In short, leaven is unbelief. Leaven is unbelief. It's the failure to recognize Jesus as the one whom God is uniquely and redemptively working through to meet the needs of those who cast themselves upon His grace and His mercy. So the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod here is really quite simple. It's the leaven of unbelief. Now let's think for a moment, what might this look like in our lives? There are a number of, of, of ways we could describe this, but I, I want to just look at the disciples for tonight. Remember that this leaven, it's subtle and it works imperceptibly below the surface, almost without even noticing. And remember, what's the situation here for the disciples? They're, again, verse 14, they're in the boat. They're on the way to Bethsaida with Jesus and they realize that they don't have enough food to go around. They only have one loaf. It's a situation where it's, it's not a great situation, but it's not a terrible one. It, it's, it's not a real long journey that they're on here, but they're probably hungry and they would like some bread and who knows if they'll be able to find some as soon as they land in Bethsaida. Whatever the case is, they're in this predicament. Their circumstances are not favorable. But I want you to notice, how do they respond? In verse 16, we discover, again, when we remember what's going on when Mark uses this word discussing with one another, that they're self-reliant. One of the first signs of this leaven of unbelief is self-reliance in your life. It is the heart maneuver of trying to navigate life without reference to Jesus. No matter what's going on, no matter how hard it is, here we have the first sign of this leaven of unbelief that Jesus is warning them. It's self-reliance. And the second one, though, we see is that they are spiritually oblivious The way in which Mark writes this story makes the disciples sound like they are clueless. They have seen Jesus feed a a group of 5,000 and a group of 4,000. And here they are. They have no bread and a relatively short journey across the Sea of Galilee. And they're kind of freaking out. And Jesus is with them. And they won't talk to him. And then... Jesus asked them all these questions. Do you not perceive or understand? Why won't you ask me? It it kind of blows the mind. It's intended to help you to see that this leaven of unbelief, our spiritual uh, sense of blindness and being oblivious, is much more than just having the right information. It's a heart problem. 
It goes to the very core of who we are. It's We live as if this bigger story of Jesus and His kingdom is totally irrelevant. When in fact, all of these questions that Jesus puts to them communicate one thing. That in the midst of their circumstances, the one solution that they need is right there with them. They've experienced it firsthand. And yet, they still don't get it. They still don't understand. Now, what what if you're oblivious like this? What if you have this hard of a time seeing what should be obvious to you, but it really isn't obvious to you? What if you begin to perceive this kind of unbelief in your own life. It's almost imperceptible. Or what if you're married to someone like this? We could go a long time applying the obliviousness of the disciples to marriage, let me just tell you. Perhaps some of you feel like you're married to someone who's this oblivious. Or maybe you know you are this oblivious and, and you don't know what to do about that. What are you to do? Well, we need to remember his compassion. So the first thing we needed to do was we need to heed his warning, but secondly, we need to remember his compassion. Notice here, in these first, the first ten verses of this chapter, just like in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and central to that story was when Jesus says that he has compassion on the people, for they're like sheep without a shepherd. Notice here in verse 2, Jesus again, with this great crowd gathered around him, says, I have compassion on the crowd. It's the one thing that the disciples most struggle to remember. And it's the one thing, in many ways, they've seen the most evidence for, is Jesus' compassion. And in fact, even in verse 18, Jesus says, do you not remember? What's he talking about? He's asking them, do you not remember the compassion that I have showed to the 5,000 on the grassy hills in Galilee or or the 4,000 just a little bit ago? Therefore, what I want you to see here is what do you need to see about Jesus' compassion to help you remember it? First of all, I want you to see that it's repetitive. It's, this compassion is repetitive because, as we've been saying, in verse 1, Mark says, When again a great crowd. So, some scholars look at this story and think it's just a, uh, uh, it's not another feeding story, but it's the same one kind of recast. I, I personally don't see that. While there are t- lots of similarities, I think that this is a repetition Of Jesus' compassion. And it's a deepening of his compassion because in this context, Jesus is in a Gentile region. In the first feeding, he was in a solidly Jewish region. In many ways, this this story is a corollary to what we saw last week when Jesus has the interchange with the Syrophoenician woman who comes to him asking for bread, asking for him to save her daughter. And Jesus says, don't take the bread from the children. Here Jesus 
is feeding the Syrophoenician woman, as it were. He's sharing generously to the point where they're satisfied. His compassion is repetitive. What you need to see about this is that Jesus doesn't show you his compassion once. Jesus shows you his compassion again and again and again and again. But the second thing you need to notice is that his compassion corresponds to our need. Notice what he says. He says, I have compassion on the crowd, verse 2, because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. The idea here is, here is this great crowd again. They've been with him for three days. They've run out of food and they're a long way from home. And they have nothing to eat. And Jesus, he feeds them. His compassion corresponds to their need. But you see here, the disciples, if they couldn't see how he does this, they they struggle to believe that Jesus, his compassion corresponds to our need. Because they simply can't see how it's possible. Notice what they say to him. How can can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? See, here is perhaps one of the hardest things to believe about Jesus' compassion. That Jesus' compassion, to say that it corresponds to our need, means that faith looks like trusting that Jesus will enter into your life in just the way that you need. Especially when you don't know how he's going to do it. Simply because it's not obvious to you and me how he will pour out his compassion that corresponds to your need doesn't mean that he can't and it doesn't mean that he won't. And that is a lesson the disciples still have not learned. But notice again, the third thing that Jesus' compassion, we need to remember is that it's patient. If we looked at verses 5 through 9, what you'd see here is exactly almost to the detail, the interchange that Jesus had in Mark 6 with his disciples. Where his disciples are bewildered, they're confounded, they don't understand what's going on, they're even arguing with Jesus. And notice what Jesus does. He doesn't rebuke his disciples. He doesn't even seem to get mad at them. You would think that he would, that he'd get fed up with them. But he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? He involves them in sharing and enjoying his compassion. He involves them. These disciples who don't yet understand, who struggle to believe, who in many ways oscillate back and forth between enthusiasm for him and hardness of heart, he doesn't rebuke them or even show any anger or frustration. He's patient. He actually meets them where they are and involves them in what he's doing in order that they might see it for themselves. That they might share in this compassion and enjoy it and experience the satisfaction that he alone can give. And then last, his compassion is penetrating. Look towards the end of the passage in verses 17 to 21 where Jesus asks this flurry of questions. 
Seven of them in total. And in these questions, Jesus is pleading with the disciples, and at the very same time, he's admonishing them. He's pleading with them, don't you see? You see, to let Jesus pastor you means you need to let him ask you these questions. You need to allow Jesus to dig below the surface in your life to both reveal and to soften your heart. That's what these questions that Jesus gives are intended to do. And in fact, the situation that Jesus is concerned for here for his disciples is desperate. And the reason that we know that is because when Jesus says here in verse 18, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear, that, if you're at all familiar with Mark's gospel, you should start to hear, where have I heard that? We saw that in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus was talking about the parables. And in fact, he's quoting here from the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and the prophet Ezekiel from the passage that we, we read from earlier. All three of which come from sections in those prophets' messages to God's people about their hardness of heart towards God which in the end led to their exile, their alienation, their loss of communion and fellowship with God, where he had put them. It's a desperate situation. Jesus' compassion, it's penetrating. In other words, Jesus' compassion is gracious enough and loving enough to offend you, to pry you open, To help you to see what should be obvious to you and yet is not obvious to you. That unless Jesus remakes you from the inside out, you will never see what should be obvious to you. And what is obvious to you will always overwhelm and blind you to this Jesus and the compassion that he brings. So do you see why we need to remember this compassion? We, it is the antidote to the leaven of unbelief that Jesus is warning the disciples and us about. It's how we can begin to unravel this problem by looking at and resting in and seeing and remembering this compassion that Jesus shows us here. It's his pastoral strategy with you. Now, some of you really, really need to remember that. Do you think of Jesus and his pastoral strategy, his posture, his attitude towards you as one of compassion? Even when there is unbelief running rampant in your life and in your heart. Jesus isn't just compassionate on your good days. This tells you Jesus is compassionate towards you on your worst days. That should comfort you. That should be good news to you. That should even give you confidence to say and to think, I really need to let this Jesus in. I really need to let this Jesus ask me the hard questions so that I could see what is so obvious about him But for some reason, 
I have such a hard time seeing. Why do we need him to do this for us? We need him to do this for us because what may be most obvious to us may not be, and most often usually is not, what we really need. We need to look then, lastly, not only, we need to look beyond this, what's most obvious to us until we see Jesus. You see, the disciples, it was obvious they didn't have enough bread, but they couldn't see past that. They couldn't see past that to Jesus and his compassion and his provision and his satisfaction. Now think with me for a moment. Think with me for a moment. How would you respond to these disciples and to these Pharisees? Because I think what would be obvious to us is, I would think, these guys are just totally clueless. How could they not see this? Or take the Pharisees, for example. Here they are coming to Jesus in verses 11 and 12, arguing with him, testing him. I'd probably have the response of dismissing them. That This is typical. This is what religious people do. They just, they come after you, and they argue with you, and they shame you and they belittle you until you get with their program. It's their way or the highway. But think for a moment here, how does Jesus respond? The way Jesus responds is not how we would respond. It's not the obvious kind of response that we might make. And we need to see how he responds. Notice what he does here. We've seen already with the disciples. He comes to them with a warning. It's a warning of grace and compassion to them, out of love for them, followed with a series of questions that call them back to his compassion for them. And then look how he responds to the Pharisees. These Pharisees come to, to argue with him, seeking a sign from heaven to test him. Everything about that verse in verse 11 is, is an antagonistic. There's nothing about the way in which that is written, that they're actually coming to, to, to really find out. Everything about this verse and what we've seen already tells us that the Pharisees are coming to Jesus to discount him, to undermine him. But notice how he responds. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. We saw this last week. When Jesus was healing the deaf man, who was also mute, who couldn't talk, that he sighed, a deep groan of anguish. And this is similar, but it's slightly different, partly because of who he's talking to. In the previous story in Mark 7, he's, he's healing this man. He's restoring him to what he was made to be. In this context, Jesus is facing opposition, rejection. And here is this groan in this situation. It carries the meaning of dismay or despair. It describes a person in situations where they are pushed to the limit of their faithfulness. It's almost as though Jesus in his groan is saying, how much longer can I do this? Can I face this kind of rejection and opposition and I think we can, we can understand. Jesus' compassion has been on full display twice. You would think that that would be 
sufficient, that it would be persuasive, but it's not. You see, the most obvious thing in this passage is Jesus' compassion, His response of compassion. And so what does Jesus say? Why does He say in verse 12, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Is He trying to be obscure and unclear? Absolutely not. He's he's not trying to hide. He's not trying to uh, remain... um, unclear or obscure at all. It's because we were promised something better than just a sign. Jesus didn't come to just point to something that proved who He was. He came to actually do something to persuade us that He Himself is the sign. We were promised something better than a sign. We were promised a Son. And whose compassion compassion would run so deep it would cost Him His life. You see, therefore, when we come to Jesus in this story and we need to look beyond what is obvious in order to see Jesus, we need to see the cross. That the compassion He shows here and the sigh and the grace He extends would cost Him His life. And so, therefore, when you begin to realize that Jesus' compassion is costly, that many had to go to the cross in order for us to experience that compassion, for you and me to know it. The cross all of a sudden now takes on enormous significance. When faced in our lives with things that seem so obvious to us, but in fact make it hard for us to see what we should see, the cross becomes our source of patience. It becomes our source of patience Because on the cross, we begin to see what should be most obvious. That when we can't see what should be obvious, the cross tells us that Jesus has come. His compassion will never run out. And it's also as our confidence that the cross is our confidence that we, when we can't see Jesus, when we can't see Him, what we see on the cross is that Jesus and His compassion is coming after us. That He pursues us. That the cross now becomes the primary way that Jesus pastors you to see what should be obvious, but so often isn't. See, this is a warning passage that it really does penetrate, has penetrating questions that at the heart of which are Jesus' compassion. It's intended to help us to assess and to evaluate what we understand about Jesus, what we see about Him. And are we beginning to see what should be obvious, but because of the realities and pressures of life so often isn't? That's what Jesus is here doing. He's trying to pastor you with His compassion, so that you would see Him as He truly is. The Son of God, crucified, risen from the dead, who now lives and reigns in order to work out His compassion into your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this word. This word that reminds us again 
and teaches us and pastors us with your compassion. Father, we ask that by your spirit, for your glory and for our good, that you would root out the leaven of unbelief. We pray that you would give us eyes to see that. And even more, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to remember and to understand and to trust in Jesus. Father, please would you do that for us. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.